0: Chapter 19, Part 5 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 19, Part 5 Thoroughgoing Skepticism and Thoroughgoing Eschatology but what was to be the fate of the future son of man during the messianic woes of the last times it appears as if it was appointed for him to share the persecution and the suffering he says that those who shall be saved must take their cross and follow him from matthew chapter 10 verse 38 that his followers must be willing to lose their lives for his sake and that only those who in this time of terror confess their allegiance to him shall be confessed by him before his heavenly father from matthew chapter 10 verse 32 similarly in the last of the beatitudes he had pronounced those blessed who were despised and persecuted for his sake from matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 as the future bearer of the supreme rule he must go through the deepest humiliation there is danger that his followers may doubt him therefore the last words of his message to the baptist just at the time when he sent forth the twelve is blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me from matthew chapter eleven verse six if he makes a point of familiarizing others with the thought that in the time of tribulation they may even lose their lives he must have recognized that this possibility was still more strongly present in his own case it is possible that, in the enigmatic saying about the disciples' fasting when the bridegroom is taken away from them, from Mark chapter two, verse twenty, there is a hint of what Jesus expected in that case, suffering, death, and resurrection must have been closely united in the messianic consciousness from the first. so much, however, is certain, viz. that the thought of suffering formed part at the time of the sending forth of the disciples of the mystery of the kingdom of God, and of the messiahship of Jesus, and that, in the form that Jesus and all the elect were to be brought low in the pyrasmos at the time of the death struggle against the evil world power which would arise against them, brought down, it might be, even to death. It mattered as little in his own case as in that of others whether, at the time of the parousia, he should be one of those who should be metamorphosed or one who had died and risen again the question arises however how this self-consciousness of jesus could remain concealed it is true the miracles had nothing to do with the messiahship since no one expected the messiah to come as an earthly miracle worker in the present age on the contrary it would have been the greatest of miracles if anyone had recognized the messiah as an earthly miracle worker how far the cries of the demoniacs who addressed him as messiah were intelligible by the people must remain an open question what is clear is that his messiahship did not become known in this way even to his disciples and yet in all his speech and action the messianic consciousness shines forth one might indeed speak of the acts of his messianic consciousness the beatitudes Nay, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, with the authoritative I, for ever breaking through, bears witness to the high dignity which he ascribed to himself. Did not this I set the people thinking? What must they have thought when, at the close of this discourse, he spoke of people who, at the day of judgment, would call upon him as Lord and appeal to the works which they had done in his name? And who, yet, were destined to be rejected because he would not recognize them. From Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. What must they thought of him when he pronounced those blessed who were persecuted and despised for his sake? From Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. By what authority did this man forgive sins? From Mark chapter 2, verse 5 and following in the discourse at the sending forth of the disciples the i is still more prominent he demands of men that in the trials to come they shall confess him that they shall love him more than father or mother bear their cross after him and follow him to the death since it is only for such that he can entreat his heavenly father from matthew chapter 10 verse 32 and following admitting that the expression heavenly father contained no riddle for the listening disciples since he had taught them to pray our father which art in heaven we have still to ask who was he whose yea or nay should prevail with god to determine the fate of men at the judgment and yet they found it hard nay impossible to think of him as messiah they guessed him to be a prophet some thought of elias some of john the baptist risen from the dead as appears clearly from the answer of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Footnote, That he could be taken for the Baptist, risen from the dead, shows how short a time before the death of the Baptist his ministry had begun. He only became known, as the Baptist's question shows, at the time of the mission of the disciples. Herod first heard of him after the death of the Baptist. Had he known anything of Jesus beforehand, it would have been impossible for him suddenly to identify him with the Baptist risen from the dead. This elementary consideration has been overlooked in all calculations of the length of the public ministry of Jesus. End footnote. The Messiah was a supernatural personality who was to appear in the last times, and who was not expected upon earth before that. At this point, a difficulty presents itself how could jesus be elias for the people did they not hold john the baptist to be elias not in the least jesus was the first and the only person who attributed this office to him and moreover he declares it to the people as something mysterious difficult to understand if ye can receive it this is elias which was for to come he that hath ears to hear let him hear from matthew chapter eleven verses fourteen and fifteen in making this revelation he is communicating to them a piece of supernatural knowledge opening up a part of the mystery of the kingdom of god therefore he uses the same formula of emphasis as when making known in parables the mystery of the kingdom of god from mark chapter four the disciples were not with him at this time and therefore did not learn what was the role of john the baptist when a little later, in descending from the Mount of Transfiguration, he predicted to the three who formed the inner circle of his followers the resurrection of the Son of Man, they came to him with difficulties about the rising from the dead. How could this be possible when, according to the Pharisees and scribes, Elias must come first, whereupon Jesus explains to them that the preacher of repentance whom Herod had put to death had been Elias? From Mark chapter 9, verses 11-13. Why did not the people take the Baptist to be Elias? In the first place, no doubt, because he did not describe himself as such. In the next place, because he did no miracle. He was only a natural man without any evidence of supernatural power, only a prophet. In the third place, and that was the decisive point, he had himself pointed forward to the coming of Elias. He who was to come, he whom he preached, was not the messiah but elias he describes him not as a supernatural personality not as a judge not as one who will be manifested at the unveiling of the heavenly world but as one who in his work shall resemble himself only much greater one who like himself baptizes though with the holy spirit had it ever been represented as the work of the messiah to baptize before the last judgment so it was inferred from joel the great outpouring of the spirit was to take place before the last judgment so taught malachi elias was to come until these events had occurred the manifestation of the son of man was not to be looked for men's thoughts were fixed therefore not on the messiah but upon elias and the outpouring of the spirit the baptist in his preaching combines both ideas and predicts the coming of the great one who shall baptize with the holy spirit i e who brings about the outpouring of the spirit his own preaching was only designed to secure that at his coming that great one should find a community sanctified and prepared to receive the spirit when he heard in the prison of one who did great wonders and signs he desired to learn with certainty whether this was he who was to come If this question is taken as referring to the Messiahship, the whole narrative loses its meaning and upsets the theory of the Messianic secret, since, in this case at least, one person had become aware, independently, of the office which belonged to Jesus, not to mention all the ineptitudes involved in making the Baptist here speak in doubt and confusion. Moreover, on this false interpretation of the question, the point of Jesus' discourse is lost. For in this case, it is not clear why he says to the people afterwards, If ye can receive it, John himself is Elias. This revelation presupposes that Jesus and the people who had heard the question which had been addressed to him also gave it its only natural meaning, referring it to Jesus as the bearer of the office of Elias. That even the first evangelist gives the episode a messianic setting by introducing it with the words, when john heard in the prison of the works of the christ does not alter the facts of the body of the narrative the sequel directly contradicts the introduction and this interpretation fully explains the evasive answer of jesus in which exegesis has always recognized a certain reserve without ever being able to make it intelligible why jesus did not simply send him the message yes i am he Whereto, however, according to modern theology, he would have needed to add, but another kind of Messiah from him whom you expect. The fact was, the Baptist had put him in an extremely difficult position. He could not answer that he was Elias if he held himself to be the Messiah. On the other hand, he could not and would not disclose to him, and still less to the messengers and the listening multitude, the secret of his Messiahship therefore he sends this obscure message which only contains a confirmation of the facts which john had already heard and closes with a warning come what may not to be offended in him of this the baptist was to make what he could it mattered in fact little how john understood the message the time was much more advanced than he supposed the hammer of the world's clock had risen to strike the last hour All that he needed to know was that he had no cause to doubt. In revealing to the people the true office of the Baptist, Jesus unveiled to them almost the whole mystery of the kingdom of God and nearly disclosed the secret of his Messiahship. For if Elias was already present, was not the coming of the kingdom close at hand? And if John was Elias, who was Jesus? There could be only one answer, the Messiah. But this seemed impossible, because Messiah was expected as a supernatural personality. The eulogy on the Baptist is, historically regarded, identical in content with the prediction of the parousia in the discourse at the sending forth of the disciples. For after the coming of Elias, there must follow immediately the judgment and the other events belonging to the last time. Now we can understand why, in the enumeration of the events of the last time in the Discourse to the Twelve, the coming of Elias is not mentioned. We see here, too, how, in the thought of Jesus, messianic doctrine forces its way into history and simply abolishes the historic aspect of the events. The Baptist had not held himself to be Elias. The people had not thought of attributing this office to him the description of elias did not fit him at all since he had done none of those things which elias was to do and yet jesus makes him elias simply because he expected his own manifestation as son of man and before that it was necessary that elias must first have to come and even when john was dead Jesus still told the disciples that in him Elias had come, although the death of Elias was not contemplated in the eschatological doctrine and was in fact unthinkable. But Jesus must somehow drag or force the eschatological events into the framework of the actual occurrences. Thus, the conception of the dogmatic element in the narrative widens in an unexpected fashion and even what before seemed natural becomes on a closer examination doctrinal the baptist is made into elias solely by the force of jesus messianic consciousness a short time afterwards immediately upon the return of the disciples he spoke and acted before their eyes in a way which presupposed the messianic secret the people had been dogging his steps at a lonely spot on the shores of the lake they surrounded him and he taught them about many things from mark chapter six verses thirty through thirty four the day was drawing to a close but they held closely to him without troubling about food in the evening before sending them away he fed them weisse long ago had constantly emphasized the fact that the feeding of the multitude was one of the greatest historical problems because this narrative, like that of the Transfiguration, is very firmly riveted to its historical setting, and therefore imperatively demands explanation. How is the historical element in it to be got at? Certainly not by seeking to explain the apparently miraculous in it on natural lines, by representing that at the bidding of Jesus people brought out the baskets of provision which they had been concealing and thus importing into the tradition a natural fact which, so far from being hinted at in the narrative, is actually excluded by it. Our solution is that the whole is historical, except the closing remark that they were all filled. Jesus distributed the provisions which he and his disciples had with them among the multitude, so that each received a very little after he had first offered thanks. The significance lies in the giving of thanks and in the fact that they had received from him consecrated food. Because he is the future Messiah, this meal becomes, without their knowledge, the messianic feast. With the morsel of bread which he gives his disciples to distribute to the people, he consecrates them as partakers in the coming messianic feast, and gives them the guarantee that they, who had shared his table in the time of his obscurity, would also share it in the time of his glory. In the prayer, he gave thanks not only for the food, but also for the coming kingdom and all its blessings. It is the counterpart of the Lord's Prayer where he so strangely inserts the petition for daily bread between the petitions for the coming of the kingdom and the deliverance from the Pyrasmos. The feeding of the multitude was more than a love feast, a fellowship meal. It was, from the point of view of Jesus, a sacrament of salvation. We never realize sufficiently that in a period when the judgment and the glory were expected as close at hand, one thought arising out of this expectation must have acquired special prominence. How, namely, a man could obtain a guarantee of coming scatheless through the judgment, of being saved and received into the kingdom, of being signed and sealed for deliverance amid the coming trial as the chosen people in egypt had a sign revealed to them from god by means of which they might be manifest as those who were to be spared but once we do realize this we can understand why the thought of signing and sealing runs through the whole of the apocalyptic literature it is found as early as the ninth chapter of ezekiel there god is making preparation for judgment the day of visitation of the city is at hand but first the Lord calls unto the man clothed with linen, who had the rider's inkhorn by his side, and said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Only after that does he give command to those who are charged with the judgment to begin, adding, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark from ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 and 6 in the 15th of the psalms of solomon the last eschatological writing before the movement initiated by the baptist it is expressly said in the description of the judgment that the saints of god bear a sign upon them which saves them In the Pauline theology, very striking prominence is given to the thought of being sealed unto salvation. The apostle is conscious of bearing about with him in his body the marks of Jesus, from Galatians chapter 6 verse 17, the dying of Jesus, from Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 10. This sign is received in baptism, since it is a baptism into the death of Christ. In this act, the recipient is, in a certain sense, really buried with him, and thenceforth walks among men as one who belongs, even here below, to risen humanity. From Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and following. Baptism is the seal, the earnest of the Spirit, the pledge of that which is to come. From Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 and ephesians chapter four verse thirty this conception of baptism as a salvation in view of that which was to come goes down through the whole of ancient theology its preaching might really be summed up in the words keep your baptism holy and without blemish in the shepherd of hermas even the spirits of the men of the past must receive the seal which is the water in order that they may bear the name of god upon them that is why the tower is built over the water and the stones which are brought up out of the deep are rolled through the water in the apocalypse of john the thought of sealing stands prominently in the foreground the locusts receive power to hurt those only who have not the seal of god on their foreheads from revelation chapter nine verses four and five the beast in revelation chapter thirteen verse sixteen and following compels men to bear his mark only those who will not accept it are to reign with christ from revelation chapter 20 verse 4 the chosen 144000 bear the name of god and the name of the lamb upon their foreheads from revelation chapter 14 verse 1 assurance of salvation in a time of eschatological expectation demanded some kind of security for the future of which the earnest could be possessed in the present And with this, the predestinarian thought of election was in complete accord. If we find the thought of being sealed unto salvation previously in the Psalms of Solomon, and subsequently in the same signification in Paul, in the Apocalypse of John, and down to the shepherd of Hermas, it may be assumed in advance that it will be found in some form or other in the so strongly eschatological teaching of Jesus and the Baptist. It may be said, indeed, to dominate completely the eschatological preaching of the baptist for this preaching does not confine itself to the declaration of the nearness of the kingdom and the demand for repentance but leads up to an act to which it gives a special reference in relation to the forgiveness of sins and the outpouring of the spirit it is a mistake to regard baptism with water as a symbolic act in the modern sense and make the baptist decry his own wares by saying I baptize only with water, but the other can baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is not contrasting the two baptisms, but connecting them. He who is baptized by him has the certainty that he will share in the outpouring of the Spirit which shall precede the judgment, and at the judgment shall receive forgiveness of sins, as one who is signed with the mark of repentance. The object of being baptized by him is to secure baptism with the Spirit later. The forgiveness of sins associated with baptism is proleptic. It is to be realized at the judgment. The Baptist himself did not forgive sin. Footnote. That the baptism of John was essentially an act which gave a claim to something future may be seen from the fact that Jesus speaks of his sufferings and death as a special baptism, and that the sons of Zebedee, whether they are willing for the sake of gaining the thrones on his right hand and his left to undergo this baptism if the baptism of john had had no real sacramental significance it would be unintelligible that jesus should use this metaphor and footnote if he had done so how could such offense have been taken when jesus claimed for himself the right to forgive sins in the present from mark chapter two verse ten The baptism of John was therefore an eschatological sacrament pointing forward to the pouring forth of the Spirit and to the judgment, a provision for salvation. Hence the wrath of the Baptist when he saw Pharisees and Sadducees crowding to his baptism. Ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth now fruits meet for repentance. From Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. By the reception of baptism, that is, they are saved from the judgment. As a cleansing unto salvation, it is a divine institution, a revealed means of grace. That is why the question of Jesus, whether the baptism of John was from heaven or from men, placed the scribes at Jerusalem in so awkward a dilemma. From Mark chapter 11, verse 30. The authority of Jesus, however, goes farther than that of the Baptist, as the messiah who is to come he can give even here below to those who gather about him a right to partake in the messianic feast by this distribution of food to them only they do not know what is happening to them and he cannot solve the riddle for them the supper at the lake of gennesareth was a veiled eschatological sacrament neither the disciples nor the multitude understood what was happening since they did not know who he was who thus made them his guests. Footnote. The thought of the Messianic feast is found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1 and following, and chapter 65, verse 12 and following. It is very strongly marked in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, a passage which perhaps dates from the time of Alexander the Great. Quote, and Yahweh of hosts will prepare upon this mountain for all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things prepared with marrow, of wine on the lees well refined. He shall destroy in this mountain among all peoples the veil which has veiled all people and the covering which has covered all nations. He shall destroy death for ever, and the Lord Yahweh shall wipe away the tears from off all faces, and the reproach of his people shall disappear from the earth. Close in Enoch, chapter 24 and chapter 25, the conception of the Messianic feast is connected with that of the tree of life, which shall offer its fruits to the elect upon the mountain of the king. Similarly, in the Testament of Levi, chapter 28, verse 11, the decisive passage is in Enoch, chapter 62, verse 14. After the parousia of the Son of Man and after the judgment, the elect who have been saved, quote, shall eat with the Son of Man, shall sit down and rise up with Him to all eternity. Jesus' references to the Messianic feast are therefore not merely images, but point to a reality. In Matthew, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, He prophesies that many shall come from the east and from the west to sit at meat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew chapter twenty two verses one through fourteen, the messianic feast is pictured as a royal marriage. In Matthew chapter twenty five verses one through thirteen, as a marriage feast. The apocalypse is dominated by the thought of the feast in all its forms. In Revelation chapter two, verse seven, It appears in connection with the thought of the tree of life. In chapter 2, verse 17, it is pictured as a feeding with manna. In chapter 3, verse 21, it is the feast which the Lord will celebrate with his followers. In chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, there is an allusion to the Lamb who shall feed his own, so that they shall no more hunger or thirst. Chapter 19 describes the marriage feast of the Lamb the messianic feast therefore played a dominant part in the conception of blessedness from enoch to the apocalypse of john from this we can estimate what sacramental significance a guarantee of taking part in that feast must have had the meaning of celebration was obvious in itself and was made manifest in the conduct of it the sacramental effect was wholly independent of the apprehension and comprehension of the recipient Therefore, in this also, the meal at the lakeside was a true sacrament. This meal must have been transformed by tradition into a miracle, a result which may have been in part due to the references to the wonders of the Messianic feast which were doubtless contained in the prayers, not to speak of the eschatological enthusiasm which then prevailed universally. Did not the disciples believe that on the same evening when they had been commanded to take Jesus into their ship at the mouth of the Jordan, to which point he had walked along the shore, did they not believe that they saw him come walking towards them upon the waves of the sea? The impulse to the introduction of the miraculous into the narrative came from the unintelligible element with which the men who surrounded Jesus were at this time confronted. Footnote Weisse rightly remarks that the task of the historian in dealing with Mark must consist in explaining how such myths could be accepted by a chronicler who stood so relatively near the events as our Mark does. End, footnote. End of chapter 19, part 5